Um, it is my pleasure to introduce our two speakers this evening. Uh, first, we have John Blinko, who worked as a pilot for 24 years, flying all over the world in aircraft, including the Boeing 757, the 747, and the, the DC-10. He also has extensive experience as a pilot instructor for United Airlines and Boeing Flight Safety, and as a security instructor for the TSA. He graduated with a BA from Cal State San Bernardino in 1996. Uh, our second speaker here this evening is Dr. Thomas Spilker, who earned his PhD from Stanford University. He then spent over 20 years at JPL, working as a spaceflight mission architect, where he focused on planetary atmospheric sciences and radio astronomy, as well as the more higher level mission architecture planning and systems design. He worked on NASA's Voyager, Cassini, and Gemini missions, and was the co-investigator for the Miro instrument on the Rosetta mission. After retiring in 2012, he started his own consulting business as a space flight mission architect. So please help me welcome the speakers here today. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, thank you for attending this meeting, important meeting tonight. Before we begin, I want to thank Michelle Judd and Tom Prince and the Keck Fellows for hosting this presentation. Thank you, Michelle. <clears throat> in the last few months, we have seen unprecedented achievements in rocket reusability from private space programs. Their successes will usher in an era of lower launch fees and greater frequency. We could take people into space cheaper now, but where would they go? The International Space Station? The ISS is a laboratory. The food is bad. <laughs> there is no shower. People sleep in closets. And we don't want to talk about the toilet. <clears throat> On December 7th, 2015, William Gerstmeier, Associate Administrator of NASA's Human Exploration and Operations Directorate said, we are going to get out of the International Space Station as quickly as we can. Whether it gets filled in by the private sector or not, NASA's vision is we're trying to move out. Was it the food or the toilet? <clears throat> NASA's job in low Earth orbit is over. It's time for industry to step in and fill those shoes as NASA moves further out. Should we build another bigger ISS? No. We need to build a spaceport. The ISS is more like a stagecoach stop in the Old West it's nice to see when there's nothing else around, but you wouldn't mistake it for the Hilton. When NASA moves out to cislunar space, they will still benefit enormously from this spaceport. It will, one, provide infrastructure that greatly decreases the cost of space-based activities for science, exploration, commerce, and industry. Two, provide a habitat that allows long-duration human occupation without the long-term health benefits stemming from microgravity and other space environment considerations. Other space agencies, too, will benefit from this artificial gravity platform in space that is inclusive in nature, like an international airport built for all humankind. The primary purpose for the construction of this spaceport is to make space travel a middle-class activity. Space tourism, the creation of this platform, <coughs> space infrastructure, will provide many essential services found in a typical city. Water, power, habitation, and of course air, and thermal control. That becomes the nucleation center for all other activities. 
The gateway has three main components, and every part is designed to be expanded upon. First to be built is the hub, which you see here. The hub is the most essential component of the gateway. It will house administration, control room, environmental processing, and the view part, which you saw on the previous uh, slide, and the bay. The bay lies at the core of the hub. The bay is designed to be a spaceport to facilitate transfers between Earth shuttles and lunar craft. This vital component of the gateway will become operational before spin-up. The design of the bay will utilize five gates on each deck, two gates on each side, <coughs> and one pop-up gate near the center for longer spacecraft designs such as reaction engine Skylon. Next to be built will be the first ring, the LGA Habitation Area. LGA stands for Lunar Gravitational Area. Spinning at 1 RPM, this ring will provide its guests 17% of Earth's gravitational pull. You will feel like you're walking on the moon. After we cover the area between the hub and the LGA Habitation Ring, you will then have a large, high-ceiling enclosed volume we call the LGA Recreation Area. The LGA is like a destination hotel with a large open-air gymnasium, a park, a restaurant, a casino, a bandstand for live performance. To live on other worlds, we must first learn how to grow food in low gravity, so a vertical layered garden will join the park's far end. It will be a popular hotel. Old people will feel young in lunar gravity. Young people will feel like Spider-Man. Many new sports and games will be created by people learning how to spin gravity is different from what we have here on Earth. Will basketball get a new name because it's so hard to play now? <clears throat> will Ender's Dragon Army fight Salamander in the microgravity chamber in the hub? <clears throat> and here's a question for professors or students to their professors. If you attach wings to your arms, could you fly? Robert Heinlein says you can. The outer ring is the Mars gravitational area. The MGA will produce around 30% of Earth's gravity, making it the perfect place for future colonists to feel Mars' lighter gravitational pull. The MGA's large ring will provide spacious accommodations for almost 1,000 people and will be the only area offering private apartments for lease. Later, the area between the LGA and the MGA ring will be covered too, creating a large spinning disk. What kind of impact will this spaceport have? I bring you back to this LGA image to show you the potential of an unfinished gateway. With just the LGA constructed, there would be between 400 and 500 guest rooms available for use. In the early days of the LGA's operation, the occupancy will be kept low until the facility is fully tested and certified. If only 100 people arrived every day from several launch sites around the world for a two-day stay, that would be 3,000 people every month, 36,000 people every year. That's a revolution in space travel. In the 55 years since Yuri Gagarin first orbited Earth, 550 people have followed his path. The Gateway could do that many people less than a week. <clears throat> it takes three essential things to build a Gateway spaceport. Number one, the money. Proper funding that is there every year, regardless of economic climate. Number two, advanced construction techniques and technology. Number three, and this is the big one, people with the will to build a gateway. Apollo had number three. 
and that third item is so powerful, it can get you the other two. Is this the place where you're going to get the money to build a gateway? Not a chance. <laughs> government funds are fought over every year. Programs are slashed and cut. Then the government shuts down. Is there a better way? <laughs> Last year, lotteries in America generated $70 billion. Worldwide, over $300 billion. The Gateway Lottery will span the globe by way of the internet and generate the necessary revenue every year to fund this massive project. The Gateway Lottery tickets will be purchased only from people who believe in space travel and want a chance to go. But the best part of using a lottery to fund the construction of the spaceport is that nobody contributes any money who does not want to. And that those who want to may contribute as much as they want when it best suits their financial situation. Central to the Gateway Lottery is the dual prize system offering both a cash prize and a trip prize, thus giving middle-class people a chance to visit the Gateway. This lottery will do the one thing that is more important than anything else we have talked about so far, to safely bring the middle class into space by the thousands every year. The Gateway Lottery will become established into law through the initiative process the same way the California Lottery did in 1984. This, this method of funding space tourism is not new. Apollo astronaut Buzz Aldrin has been promoting the use of lotteries to pay for trips into space since 1998. NASA Director Wayne Hale said this at the Von Braun Symposium in 2015. Quote, two years ago, I told you a historic tale about the building of the Transcontinental Railroad and how that was a great technical and engineering feat. But the really impressive part was the creative financing and the organization organization that made it successful. He goes on to say, two years ago I told you we need to learn from that example how to be creative, innovative, flexible, and hardworking, not just technically, but financially and organizationally as well. We hear you, Mr. Hale. Building the gateway will be like nothing we've done before. We have built massive ships and structures, huge oil and gas cities at sea, Structures that required new designs, new materials, and most of all, a new attitude. One that allows us to depart from our old ways and fears of failure and move ahead into unfamiliar territory. This new attitude built vital infrastructure like the Panama Canal and the Eiffel Tower long before some people were ready for them. Let's go back in time to 1865 when a young man named Andrew Carnegie accepted an impossible challenge to build a railroad bridge across the Mississippi River. Railroads were ready to unite the nation, but they had to cross the Mississippi and bridges failed 25% of the time. The brick and the pig iron in use was not strong enough. To span the river, the bridge would have to be over a mile long, and its design did not interfere with the river traffic below. Many believed it was impossible. To build such a bridge required a new design and a new material. This was the first bridge to be, to be built using a cantilever support methods and the first to use structural steel in a bridge. It took a long time. It was dangerous. It was costly. But when completed, it reduced the time to go from New York to San Francisco to 83 hours on express train. Only a few years before, it took six months by wagon train. But it wasn't just the reduction in time. Now millions of Americans could expand westward 
It started a new era. That, bril that bridge was built 142 years ago, and it's still there today, handling rail and vehicular traffic. That's infrastructure. This is the Leadenhall Building. The Leadenhall Building was built in downtown London and is considered by many architects as the most advanced building in the world. Not because of its shape. The Brits call it the cheese grater. The one to the right they call the gherkin. <clears throat> it is the manner in which it was built that makes it so advanced. From start to finish, it took only two years. That's a blink of the eye in skyscraper construction time. How do they do it so fast? First, it has no concrete core. Its structural strength comes from its metal exoskeleton. Second, it was built 19 times on computer using a work schedule that accounted for every bolt tightened, every window set in place, minute by minute, every day, seven days a week, for two years. Precision timing. But Leadenhall had a small footprint, leaving no room for material storage on site. This meant every beam, every window had to be lifted in place just as it arrived. Last, most of the structural beams had the same design and were bolted together off-site, then delivered and bolted together in London. This is called permanent modular construction. Permanent modular construction can produce results very fast. Here, we show you a 57-story hotel in China built in just 19 days. These are the modules for the rooms. The floor plates also act as the ceiling for the floor below it. Here we are just a few days later. Note how all the windows are all the same size. All the structural members reaching skyward are the same size and same shape. The finished product after 19 days. I don't know why this building has a few missing windows, but I guarantee you when you visit the gateway, all the windows will be in place. <laughs> Another form of construction to consider for assembling large things is called block construction, often used in shipbuilding and aircraft assembly. This is a shipyard in Korea, building a container ship. Here is an Airbus 380 hull section. The top two decks are for people, and the bottom is for cargo, or short people. <laughs> How do we build in space? To build the gateway, we will utilize construction methods like permanent modular construction, using an automated fabrication system like this gateway segment assembly line, or G-cell. Automated robotics and core are the core tenets to building the gateway. They will reduce construction time and exposure to hazards for people assembling the structure. The gateway will create segments that are each unique for that part of the gateway. For instance, to create the hub, as we see here, we will weld together a series of square segments. To create ring sections, like the LGA here, the G-cell will reconfigure its beam guides to fabricate wedge-shaped segments. We have a little movie to show you how this is all going to come together. <clears throat> G-cells, pods, and bots all working in conjunction.
I want to explain why we had these pods moving the segment in this ungainly manner. Uh, we all know the pods would push the segment through its center of mass, but they would be hidden behind this hole plate. So we actually moved them up on top where the general public could see them so they'd understand the pods are moving them. So I know you guys probably figured that out, but I just wanted to point that out. <clears throat> Another method of automated construction is using additive manufacturing like we see here with SpiderFab, a design from Tethers Unlimited. Dr. Robert Hoyt is CEO and chief scientist at Tethers and was here at Caltech only three months ago. His spider fab and truss letter designs would be good candidates for gateway construction. <clears throat> Spacesuits, bots, pods, and drones will help create the gateway too. The ILC Dover Z1 on the left was developed in 2012. To build heavy structures in space, a new EVA suit will be needed. A construction spacesuit designed with Z1 and Z2 features, the one on the right, will stress communication and coordination with other construction assets in use. For tourists, they will wear something like this Newman biosuit invented by Dr. David Newman. This tight spacesuit constrains the body to simulate Earth's atmospheric pressure. This suit is still in development and has challenges with the suit helmet interface area. The neck can only be squeezed so much. <coughs> Bots, robots in space construction. NASA is on its second generation of space bots with Robonaut 2. But this robot is light years behind the ones of the DARPA robotics competition in Pomona, California last June. There, JPL's Robosimian <laughs> did well, but the South Korean case took first prize. When we start to see the, the gateway construction, have no doubt, bots will be ready to go. Pods. Pod development is the least mature of all the essential space construction items. Why? Because ISS, we never needed to use them. It was small enough to build with just EVA suits and manipulator arms. Pods will be the cranes of space construction, vital for moving heavy things around. We have never created a pod for space, but we have made them for deep sea operations where they are widely used to create vast undersea networks of natural gas lines and terminals. This is Dr. Sylvia Earle a famous oceanographer, as you can see, a pod driver. Deep sea pods will share some of the important attributes with space pods, propulsion, navigation, manipulators for moving things, and a protective shell for the operator. Drones. Are there drones already made for space? Work on space drones actually started in 1999 when an MIT professor challenged his students to make a copy of the lightsaber training drone from the movie Star Wars. That's not a joke. The idea became the SPHERES program. SPHERES has investigated how drones can perform autonomous docking, formation flight, and work as a collective group. SPHERES also investigated teleoperation of space robots during servicing and maintenance operations. Most important to space construction are retriever drones that will fetch errant objects like a dog would fetch, off it would go. And what we call eyes-on drones, designed to help watch, designed to watch heavy construction members come together here is a SPHERES drone fitted with stereoscopic vision. There will be two kinds of eyes-on drones, flyers and crawlers. Flyers need propellant. Crawlers need only juice for their batteries so they're more efficient. Jobs in space. The first jobs in space will be for, constru for construction equipment assembly and testing. This actually might happen at ISS since it's part of its charter to let companies test things that would help humankind's advancement into space. 
these first jobs in space will go to astronauts with experience in EVA work. After the construction equipment is assembled, then a round of testing begins of low rate production to find a cadence where bots, pods, and drones can work together in concert. The second year of production will introduce new astronauts trained by the first cadre of experienced astronauts. These will be the first jobs in space for people hired and trained by the Gateway Foundation. And that could be you. Every year thereafter, more and more Gateway trained astronauts will be introduced to help build the Gateway. What kind of jobs? EVA work in spacesuits, pod drivers, G-cell arm operators, drone operators in orbit, bot pod drone and spacesuit personnel, construction space station personnel, and ground jobs. Ground, ground jobs in support of orbital construction activities, mission control, bot drivers terrestrial operated, drone operators terrestrial operated and people who architect and design the equipment for a multitude of different uses, science, exploration, and industrial. When the gateway construction is complete, the hub, the LGA, and the MJ will offer jobs to operate the facility. Gateway approach control, departure control, hub operations, bay control, gate operations, security, every position you'd find at a terrestrial airport. The LGA will need all the positions of a major hotel, guest relations, guest low gravity orientation, housekeeping, chefs, groundskeepers for the park, front desk personnel, and more. Next, we will have my friend, Dr. Thomas Spilker, explain a few of the technical considerations of the Gateway Spaceport. Dr. Thomas Spilker. Thank you, John. John has mentioned some of the high-level goals for the Gateway. Those high-level goals feed directly into the highest-level system requirements for building the Gateway. From those system requirements that pay attention to what Lewis Sullivan told us, form follows function. You decide what you're <laughs> trying to do first and then you build something that does that, not the other way around. You don't build something because it looks pretty and then try to do something with it. Now, physical realities set some of the requirements that we'll see, and they influence others. When we're building the gateway to these requirements, we want to build in accommodation for obvious extensions. In addition to being a world-class hotel with the best view you're ever going to have, there are other things that the Gateway can do, and we want to make sure that it can accommodate those extensions. Some of the requirements that flow out of those goals include artificial gravity. If you're going to prevent uh, long-term illnesses and conditions in humans, then you must provide artificial gravity. But how much gravity do we need? Do we need a quarter G? Do we need lunar gravity? Do we need Mars gravity? Do we need half a G? It turns out that very little is known about the magnitude of gravity needed to prevent these long-term health issues in humans. Of course, that opens the opportunity for groundbreaking research at the Gateway. If we're going to have the middle class involved, and of course they're not heavily trained in astronautics, then you're going to have to provide for human survival and for comfort. They're going to need air. 
there are trades to be done with the pressure and the composition of that air. Are we going to need to have one bar of 21% oxygen and 79% nitrogen? Or can we drop that down to 850 millibars, which is about the pressure at Boulder, Colorado, and do that pressure drop by strictly dropping the nitrogen pressure, keep, keeping the oxygen partial pressure up? Are there problems with that mix? We don't know just yet. People are going to need water also. They're going to need about four liters per day of drinking water and more for hygiene. That water is going to return to the system, the drinking water at least, uh, in the form of gaseous wastes, liquid wastes, and solid wastes. Now the gaseous wastes are not trivial. Uh, people exhale on the order of a kilogram of water every day. Will we be able to recycle that water? either partially or fully. How are we going to distribute it? Once we get past the starting transients uh, for the startup of Gateway, will we need constant replenishment of water reserves at the Gateway? Well, as it turns out, probably not. The people are also going to need food. They're going to need good food, not stuff that's reconstituted from a powder in a bag, like what John showed. And that good food being brought up is a fair amount water. In fact, more than half of that good food will be water. So if you're recycling anywhere close to 100% of the water that comes up, then there's a net transport of water up to the gateway and eventually, given a lot of time, you could flood the gateway. There will be an excess. Don't throw away that excess. If there's excess water, there will also be plenty of power on the gateway, use that power to break up the water into hydrogen and oxygen and fuel rocket engines with it. People are going to need living quarters, habitations also, and they're not going to want closets. They're going to want something bigger than that, and that will enter into sizing considerations for the gateway. We need to avoid designs that in induce space-related, call them inconveniences, like uh, vertigo, and space-related illnesses. Uh, these kind of things can put limits on the rotation rates, which we will discuss that a little more later, but it also says you need to provide such things as radiation shielding. This is mostly for the longer-term people on board, uh, the workers and people who rent some of the apartments and are living there long-term uh, would mostly benefit from that radiation shielding. As an example of how these goal-related requirements and physical realities come together to provide uh, information about construction, about the design of the gateway. Let's look at artificial gravity, the question of how much artificial gravity you need, and limits on rotation rates from human physiology, and look at how that affects the size of the system. If you have a rotating system, with a diameter r, the rotation vector, the uh, uh, vector form of the rotation, capital omega, and that has a, a magnitude of small omega, then the acceleration you experience out at the rim at radius r is given by capital omega crossed into capital omega crossed into r, the magnitude of that, and that's just little omega squared times the magnitude of r. This is just 
freshman physics, nothing fancy, it's just Coriolis equations. It's kind of fun every now and then to go into a, a freshman physics classroom where they're working a problem with equations like this. You see a whole bunch of people in a room doing this. <laughs> every now and then you'll see one doing this. Probably not here at Caltech. And you know, soon, they're going to drop the class and change majors. <laughs> but you can invert this equation, and you wind up with an expression that gives you the required radius of the system given the acceleration that you want, the artificial gravity you want at the rim, and the rotation rate, little omega. Now, for little omega, it turns out that about one RPM has been shown in studies. Most of the population has no trouble with one RPM. Uh, and the little trouble that they do have, in a while, in not too long a time, they, they grow accustomed to it, they adjust to it. So one RPM looks fairly safe. Maybe you can go a little faster, 1.2, 1.3. But at two RPM, there's a larger uh, portion of the population that is having trouble with rotation, and it takes them longer to adjust to it also. If you keep going up in rotation speed, by the time you get to 6 RPM, even professionally trained astronauts, people heavily trained in astronautics, have trouble with the 6 RPM, and they never get accustomed to it. There's no equilibrium where they say, okay, I'm fine from now on, even after two weeks, a month, they're still having trouble with it. So we know that that is completely out of bounds. So if we say we need Mars gravity for the acceleration, 3.71 meters per second squared, and we want to do one RPM for the rotation rate, that immediately tells you that the radius to the outside rim has to be 338 meters. That's big. But if you wanted to try to reduce that by upping the rotation rate, and let's say we go to 2 RPM instead of 1 RPM, that omega squared is in the denominator, so you cut the radius to a quarter of what it was, that becomes about 85 meters, but now you have two problems. One, for the kind of usage and the population we envision for the gateway, that might be too small. But the major problem is now at 2 RPM, even if you only have 10% of the population that's having trouble with the rotation, if you've got 2,000 people there, that's a lot of people. That's 200 people. And with the circumference now a half a kilometer, you really don't want half a kilometer of barf-lined hallways at the gateway. <laughs> The physical realities that we have, such as Earth and its atmosphere, bring in some requirements also. Uh, a couple of obvious ones are the altitude at which we're going to try to orbit uh, and the environment in low Earth orbit. For the options for altitude, if you're in lower orbit, you have less energy required to launch to the gateway, and that's good but you also have more atmospheric drag, which you have to make up, and that can be very difficult. 
If you go to higher orbits, of course, you have less atmospheric drag. Uh, to put some numbers on that, the uh, atmospheric drag at 700 kilometers altitude is one-tenth of what it is at 500 kilometers altitude. That's good. But you now have higher energy for launches to the gateway, so launches are a little more expensive, and you have more intense radiation, so you have to provide more radiation shielding. Another important uh, aspect of the orbit is the inclination. There are a couple of fairly obvious uh, choices, and then some intermediates that are maybe not quite so obvious. One is the equatorial orbit. That gives you the least energy that you can get for launches from the equatorial region but you get long eclipse periods. A little uh, less than half of each orbit is in eclipse, and if you're providing power with a solar array or a set of solar arrays, that means for almost half of your orbit, you have no power from it. Plus, you have the attendant problems from thermal cycling, which can be a problem. If you go to sun synchronous, which is almost a polar orbit, it's 97 degree inclination, so it's slightly retrograde, you have the option of having continuous sunlight. So that's great for your power system, but now you have a higher launch energy, even than, than the uh, high altitude, the 700 kilometer e equatorial, and so it costs more to get there. For the intermediates, it's not so much a technical trade, strictly, because now international uh, issues come into play. If you're ESA with a launch uh, facility at five and a quarter degrees north latitude in Kourou, French Guiana, you're very happy with a, an equatorial or near equatorial uh, orbit. NASA starts getting happy as you get close to 28 degrees north, the latitude of the Kennedy Launch Center. The Russians don't get happy until you get until, uh, to almost 52 degrees, uh, their launch center latitude. So when we start working on the, the decision of what inclination we're going to fly, there will be technical issues, but there will also be non-technical issues that we need to, to handle. And we also have to own up to the fact that we have polluted low Earth orbit. Anything of this size, any facility of this size, is going to have to handle the problem of orbital debris collisions in low Earth orbit. Now, there are multiple ways you can do that. One of them actually plays into the choice of altitude for the orbit, uh, and there are others, but that tie-in with uh, altitude kind of points out one of the interesting things about problems in spaceflight. Rarely are the problems completely separated little things that you can just plug in and grind out an answer. No, they're usually coupled. All the different seemingly unconnected problems wind up being coupled one way or another, and the only way to get really reliable results is through modeling and simulation. So it's a challenging problem. It's not just grinding out answers. I talked about size, and in addition to size, there are other aspects of the gateway that we'll need to design to accommodate things other than being a hotel that we'll want to do. There's a wide range of other potential uses. For instance, in science research, <coughs> I've already talked a little bit about some of the avenues for doing research into human physiology, but there are also avenues for animal and plant biology, especially if humankind is going to think about going to other planets and establishing habitats, say, at the moon or at Mars. We need to know 
can we grow usable crops and have farm animals under those reduced G considerations? So that research could be done at the gateway. Planetary science, astronomy, and astrophysics stand to, to benefit greatly from such things as on-orbit assembly, testing, and calibration of large, complex spacecraft that you could never launch from Earth's surface. When you launch from Earth's surface, instead of a tenth of a G or a twentieth of a G that an operational spacecraft will, will see in its uh, operational lifetime, you have launch loads of 20 Gs, 10 Gs, and vibrational loads of 40 Gs or more that you just wouldn't see if you assembled that spacecraft, tested it, and calibrated it at the gateway. Another advantage is once that spacecraft is assembled, calibrated, and tested, you can send it to its operational destination, fully deployed, no tr uh, tricky deployments necessary, send it with an upper stage that's been serviced, reconditioned if necessary, there at the gateway. For human exploration, that, that would profit from the same kind of spacecraft building, testing, and refurbishment that you have with the science spacecraft. This would make the gateway a waypoint for destinations farther out from low Earth orbit. You could use it as the waypoint for people going to the moon, going to Lagrange points to say uh, service uh, astronomical or astrophysical uh, observatories, going to asteroids, eventually maybe even going to Mars. Industry can also uh, benefit by the reduced cost of handling spacecraft for such things as building uh, communication spacecraft that are fully deployed and sent from the gateway with very low accelerations, no deployments necessary. Uh, industry can also use it for on-orbit manufacturing at low G. Now this is not micro-G, microgravity, or, or zero-G. This is low-G and would probably be somewhere in the hub. But if you need microgravity or low-G, you can establish another facility near the gateway that would give you microgravity or low-G. Another option for industry, if we're headed out to other places and want to use extraterrestrial materials, this is a good place to experiment with refining and use of those extra, extraterrestrial materials for uh, space construction. And then there's a host of things for the commercial industries, such as entertainment, especially the, the filmmaking industry and the advertising industry, uh, wonderful place for doing filming and such. And then there's a whole world of athletics that would open up. Um, new sports, I think John mentioned basketball, old sports that are completely changed by the low gravity and the rotation that you have at the gateway, but also new sports that have never been played before, such as Quidditch without requiring magic. <laughs> Not requiring the magic is good. That makes it much easier to design. Building this gateway, we provide the infrastructure that we need for all of these activities. All of these things are, we can do, are things that we can do once we have the gateway in place. What we need to do now is move on from the thinking of, that would be nice if we could do that, to let's get to work on it. Thank you. I'll turn it back over to John.
If you build it, they will come. So how will we get there? Reaction Engines is building a hybrid rocket jet engine that will allow shuttles to take off a runway like an, air, like an airplane and fly to the Gateway Spaceport without boosters. They call it Skylon. This staged-to-orbit vehicle will allow airlines to become space lines if we create a destination for them to go to. Is there another way? This statement made by Elon Musk a few years ago may offer some insight. Sending a 737 into space would not work, but sending a new shuttle of the same weight class that could take 30 to 50 people would work. It could also have embedded turbine engines and fuel on board so that after reentry, if your intended runway had a, a cow or an alligator on it, you could go around or hold until they shoot him away. That's something NASA's NASA shuttle never had. Nobody has built such a shuttle because there's nowhere for those 50 people to go in space. There's no destination yet. But if Boeing or Airbus or built such a shuttle, it might look something like this one. So what would a finished gateway look like during normal operations with shuttles arriving every few hours? Let's take a look. We have a little video for you here.
Walt Disney is one of my heroes. He was a movie producer who created the largest theme park in the world, and he did it. He had to do some creative financing, but I'm sure you guys are okay with that now. <clears throat> we hope we have inspired you to help us create the most important thing we need for humankind to move beyond our atmosphere, a destination. A destination that is not just for the affluent, but also for people who are middle class, even people living below the poverty line. People from all over the world will visit this amazing spaceport, and many will then go on to places further out. It is, after all, a gateway. The choice to build the gateway spaceport will not be made in Washington or Moscow or at NASA. It's a personal choice. It's your choice. If you want this to happen, if you want this in your future, then it's going to happen. Remember that bridge that was built 142 years ago? People said it was impossible to make a bridge that long, that high off the water. They were right with the materials of the day, with the designs of the day, but we did it with new materials, a new design. We did it, and it opened up the whole western part of America. It started a new era. The Gateway Spaceport is a bridge. When we build it, it too will open up a whole new era. We need to build this infrastructure to start the greatest adventure humankind will ever know, the human exploration of space. Join us and help us create this vital spaceport. Membership is free. Help us move from I wish we could to let's get to work on it. Thank you.